Oh, gracious God, you are the God who gives wisdom to his people, and we are in desperate need of it. So we pray to you this morning for that precious gift. Lead us into all wisdom, and we know that Jesus is wisdom, wisdom incarnate. So help us to see Christ and help us to see what he wants us to do, to live for him and to glorify him in gratitude for all that he has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is twofold. We have two texts, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 20 from the New English Translation, and then I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 from the New International Version. I choose these different translations uh, because I think they're the better re representations of, of the text. And the title of our sermon this morning is Created for Community as we continue to explore the teachings of the early chapters of Genesis. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, and the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So Christ himself, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people. For works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you know that the human brain has become smaller? And that might not be that surprising when you look at American politics right now, right? It might be rather obvious on an anecdotal level that our brains have grown smaller. But it's not just anecdotal, it's real, right? There's uh, scientific theories about the fact that our brains have reduced in size over time. Now, as with every scientific uh, theory, there are those who disagree about why, whether, how those things all happened, but there's a growing body of evidence that our brains have decreased in size over thousands of years. There was a recent study published in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution just in June by Jeremy De Silva, a, pro a, a professor at Dartmouth College where he talks about this very thing, the shrinking size of the human brain, and presents, of course, the evidence for that occurring. 
and suggests why it has occurred. Now, do you, can you think of maybe why that might have happened over a period of thousands of years? Why our brains have gotten smaller? Well, some people uh, attribute it, some scientists attribute it to you know, something that happened over a long period of time, 10,000 years, when human beings moved from kind of uh, hunters, you know, hunter-gatherers to an agrarian-based society, that that was the cause of it. But De Silva particularly instead argues that it likely occurred about 3,000 years ago. And he connects it particularly, the causation, to the development of civilization, to the change of people moving into living in large communities and civilizations in places like North Africa, the Middle East, and South America. Why would that cause our brains to decrease in size, living in a civilization, living in a community? Well, the scientists attribute it to something called collective intelligence. That is, when humans group together in community, they become smarter. One professor put it this way from Boston University. He said, it's the idea that a group of people is smarter than the smartest person in the group. So basically, you live in a group, you solve problems more rapidly, more efficiently, more accurately than what's possible for any individual. That kind of makes sense. Even the smartest person is made smarter by a group of people. The collective intelligence is as if humanity was able to crowdsource and use crowd storage for its knowledge. We didn't have to remember everything. We, had, we could rely on each other's minds. And so our minds became, our brains became smaller. And that's good because brains use a lot of energy, so we became more efficient that way. We became smarter even though our brains became smaller. And the reason why is very likely this idea that we began to live together in community. And that's what I want to talk about this morning from Genesis, the importance of community for human success, for human flourishing, particularly spiritual flourishing, that God designed and created us for community. And we live most well, beneficially, we live in a way that flourishes and grows and thrives in, when we live in a spiritual community, because God made us that way. So the sermon this morning is called Created for Community. If you like to take notes, if you want some mental hooks, you can mentally hook your, the sermon here in these three points. We're going to look at community created, community lost, and then community redeemed. Created, lost, redeemed. Community is our focus this morning. Let's look at the first point, community created. When you look at those early chapters of Genesis, as we have been looking, as I read this morning from Genesis chapter 2, what you see there very early is a major emphasis on the idea of community. It's one of the major themes of creation, and perhaps you haven't thought about it that way. We think about a lot of things when we think about creation. I'm not sure we focus that much on community, but it is a focus in the text you see it, and it, it comes up in this really fascinating way. It always kind of grabs me because the Bible is not simplistic. It's complex, and the way it presents things are often kind of complex and fascinating, even perplexing. 
But as Genesis unfolds, as we read this morning in Genesis 2 about Adam, right, what we hear is it's not good for the man to be alone. So God creates everything. He's a God of order. He creates it all good. It's all very good. And then we come to chapter 2 and we have God saying that something's not good. It's not good that the man is alone. He's lacking something he needs. It's as if, you know, the way that Scripture presents it, like it surprised God. It didn't, of course, but it's presented that way in its complexity, as this is something that the divine has discovered. It's not good that man is alone, and then God tries to remedy it. And how does he do that? Well, he, the animals, he brings the animals to Adam, right? Adam gets this great ability to name them, and they're all walking past him, right? And you get that imagery of that, which is in every children's Bible, right? Adam naming them. But he goes through this whole process, and of course, part of it is this idea of companionship, of community. You know, will this suffice? But it wasn't enough. And that's kind of fascinating, too. Didn't God know it wouldn't be enough? Well, of course he did. But it's presented to us in this unfolding way, right? It's not good for the man to be alone. The animals aren't good enough. And then that is the impetus for the man being divided, right, into male and female. And then there is community there. Now, why all of that? Why didn't we just start with man and woman in a garden? Why do we have to go through all this? It's because it's punctuating a point to us. And by kind of evolving that in this way, this kind of complex way, it's punctuating how important it is. You need community. It's not good for man to be alone. And so the first community comes together, that of Adam and Eve. Adam needed someone who corresponded to him. And think about that. The animals weren't good enough, but think about it. Even his relationship with God was not sufficient according to God's design. Why couldn't Adam just be satisfied he was in the garden? He had relationship with God. Perfect. It wasn't enough because God designed us for community. And Genesis is showing us our desperate need for that. Adam needed human community. He needed one who corresponded to him. And I think that really relates to the idea of being created in the image of God. For God is inherently a relational being, right? God is presented to us in Scripture as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, One God existing in three persons, perfect harmony, community is there within the Godhead. We are made in God's image. And so the need for community is in us. It's hardwired. We need that. God is relational. There is communion and communication within the Godhead. And so there is needed for humanity communion and communication. We are inherently relational beings. We are designed from the very beginning for community. And we need it. We need it to thrive. We need it to flourish. We need it to be what God has intended us to be. And beloved, when we lack it, It harms us. 
It harms us when we lose community, when we're isolated, when we're alone. It leads to physical and mental harm. This is a proven scientific fact. It's one of the reasons that one of the worst kinds of of torture really is solitary confinement, prolonged solitary confinement. That's why almost every human rights organization views that as a form of torture, because we were not meant to be alone. We were created for community from the very beginning. That's how we were designed. But of course, we know the biblical story, right? We know that this was lost, that sin came in and damaged it. And so point two is community lost. We were created for community, community created, number one. Number two, community lost. And so we turn the next chapter in Genesis. In Genesis 3, we see sin coming into the world, right? Coming through the actions of humanity. And almost immediately, what we see is that sin destroys. It creates this kind of a dissonance, this kind of disturbance. It, 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 it disrupts all of the relationships, the communal relationships that existed so perfectly at creation. In creation, God and humanity were in perfect relationship. In creation, humans were in perfect relationship with one another. Adam and Eve dwelled in perfect harmony. But after sin, it all changes. The vertical and horizontal axes of human, divine, and human-human relationships is all disrupted. Think about Genesis chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, after Adam sins. What does he do right there, right? God comes seeking him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, what? He said, the woman you, the woman you, God, gave me, put here with me, she She gave me something, the fruit from the tree, and I ate it, right? You, God, she. And in those words of Adam, he destroys, he shows the evidence of this disruption in this perfect harmony of relationship, in this community of the garden, right? Both of these things, the vertical and the horizontal, are broken, disruptive, destroyed. He throws Eve under the bus He accuses God, and you see it there in the curse given to Eve, right? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There are a lot of interpretations about what that means, but clearly what it means in almost every interpretation is something is wrong in that relationship. And we go on to chapter 4, and we see the first murder, right, as, as, as Cain kills Abel. All of this disruption, all of it coming from sin, community is lost. And if you read the rest of human history, what you see is the manifestation of community loss, of tension and strife and violence and broken community. We see it right before us. Humans kill humans. We do it all the time. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. It makes no rational sense for a species to kill its own kind, but we do it all the time. We're doing it in the Ukraine, right? We're doing it in the Middle East. We see it. We're doing it here in our own neighborhoods. Sin destroys community. 
we are destroying community. How many of you have noticed the destruction of civility around us? It's terrible, right? You, you feel it. It's palpable. You see it when you're at Wegmans. You see it on the road. When you're driving, right? This, people drive like idiots. It gets my profanity meter up. When I, you know, it gets, uh, right? People are, uh, right? There's this, what, what are you doing? I saw this just yesterday. Like, people are like, what are you doing? Why are you driving? Why are you like this? The breakdown in civility, and of course, the politics, just, yeah, it's just another part of it, right? It's crazy, the, the nonsense that occurred in that debate this week, right? This, this stuff, and it's not just one party, it's, it's just like all over the place in politics. A lot of it, I think, is this breakdown in community. Breakdown in community leads to breakdown in civility. We become fragmented, isolated. We engage in self-enforced, solitary confinement, and it's not good. Because community is one of the things that keep us together, that keep us civil, right? And we're losing that all around us. We're losing the physical places where people actually gather together and see one another and have to work it out together. Right? We're losing those places. I read an article um, just this August in First Things by Carl Truman. It's called The Death of Church and Pub the death of church and pub, and Truman uh, is from the UK, and he goes home every year, and he talks about the change of the English countryside, how there's more cars now than houses, how there are less churches, churches are closing, they're being turned into housing developments, nightclubs, whatever, and pubs too. Pubs, which are such a part of, 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 of community in the UK, right? Those are closing down too. These institutions, these places of community and belonging. And Truman writes in there, when communal spaces disappear, communal bonds disappear too, right? You lose the embodied place. You lose the community. You lose civility. And of course, that's going on in our own country too, isn't it, right? Church attendance, it's going the wrong direction. Church is one of the last places, a whole bunch of different people, right? A bunch of crazy oddballs can get together and have to figure out how to live together. You are a bunch of crazy oddballs. But you're here with all your differing opinions, trying to work it out together in community, gathered in a real place, right? We're losing that. It's not good for the human to be alone. And what are we trying to replace it with? What is kind of the thing we're trying to do, this great human experiment of the age, right? It's virtual communities, right? We don't need a real place. We don't need physicality, embodiment. We don't need to see one another. We can engage in the Twitterverse. We can engage. And that was kind of the whole promise of the whole project. This internet, it's going to combine us all together in a global kind of community. We're going to sing Kumbaya, give everybody a Coke, teach them to sing. How's that working? There's a great article in Comment Magazine written by Nathan Beacom. He writes this article just in September uh, 2023. It's entitled, The Community Community. 
And he begins by quoting the media ecologist Neil Postman, who lived before the advent of the, of the internet, of all what we have today. But Postman wrote a lot about technology and the trade-offs, right? There are great things about technology, but there are these disadvantages. There's loss as well as gain. And this is what he said about that. He said the printing press annihilated the oral tradition. Telegraphy annihilated space. Television has humiliated the word. And then prophetically, he said this, the computer perhaps will degrade community life. And it really has. It's true, right? I mean, there's this weird kind of paradox about the whole thing, right? This strange thing where this, we have this unparalleled ability to connect with our people, right? To find our people, people who share our values, our ideas, right? You can connect through the, your smartphone, through social media. And you you kind of have this sense of community. It sounds so good, but is it working? Is it real community? And think about how we use that word community today, how it's changed and evolved, how you most often hear the word community. Beacom writes about this when he talks about the word community today. He says, it does not refer to any particular group of people who really know one another, but rather to a category of persons who share some commonality. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying community. Now, when we use that word, when you hear it in common parlance and lingo on TV or wherever, when we say community, it's not really used about people who actually do this, what we're doing, embodied, placed, face-to-face, know each other. No, we use it about identity, about an idea, an abstractness about it, right? Community is abstract. We talk about all these different types of community. There's the black community. There's the Latino community. There's the MAGA community. There's the gay community. There, there's the whatever, right? It's all these different communities. We talk about it that way. That's how we hear about it. It's identity. It's the abstract. But are those real communities? Are they real? Are they good? Do they produce good things? Maybe they do in some ways. Beacom, in his article, quotes the New York Times reporter, Jane Coaston, who is a woman of color. She likes to mock this idea of the black community, right? Because she thinks it doesn't really exist. It's being thrown around for kind of abusive political reasons. She likes to joke, the next black community meeting is going to be wild. And her point is, there is no meeting, right? Is this real? Is there such a thing as the black community, the white community, or whatever? If you don't hold a meeting, are you real? Or is it just something that people use, politicians and pundits? And the Twitterverse to just divide people. Is it really good for us? Is it real? By focusing community on identity, are we thereby destroying real community for something that, that is not going to fill the void? I think the evidence is, yeah, that's what's happening. We're destroying real communities. We're creating virtual communities, and they're not leading us to thrive and to flourish and to be united. They're distancing ourselves from each other. We are siloing ourselves in this made-up world. 
Rather than gathering together in the pub, in the church, in the village, in our communities, face to face, that's what happens with sin. We destroy the very thing that leads to our flourishing, and community was created to lead to human flourishing, and we are losing it. Community created. Community lost. And it's true. Then comes Jesus. Like with everything we see, Jesus comes to reorient, redirect things back to their creational purposes. And it's true here. Point number three this morning, we've looked at community created, community lost, is that is community redeemed. Jesus came to redeem a community. Now let me say something controversial. Jesus didn't die for you. How do you like that? Evangelicalism has been telling you for decades, Jesus died for you. Wrong. He didn't die for you. Let me show you what I mean. This comes from uh, a book by Joseph Hellerman, When the Church Was a Family. And the point he's trying to make is how we think about salvation and how salvation is really thought about in the Bible. If you could put up that first slide... The first slide here from Hellerman's book shows us how we tend to think about salvation, right? It's all about me. Salvation is about Jesus restoring the broken relationship between me, an individual, and God. And that's how it's preached. That's how it's talked about, right? You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how we think about it. And at some level, I have no problem with that. You do need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You do need to have that disrupted relationship restored and redeemed. But when the Bible talks about salvation, it doesn't talk about it like that. That's how we do it. Hellerman notes that the word Savior is used 23 times in the New Testament. Savior, only once is it used in reference to an individual. It's about Jesus saving his people the Savior of the world, a community. When Paul uses the word Lord, he chooses the plural 53 times. He says, our Lord. It's always our Lord. One time he says, my Lord. Hellerman writes this, in the New Testament era, a person was not saved for the sole purpose of enjoying a personal relationship with God. Indeed, the phrase personal relationship with God is found nowhere in the Bible. It's not in the mindset of the Bible. Salvation is about a community. Christ came for a people. And Hellerman shows this. Show the next slide. Here's the proper, here's the biblical understanding, if you will, of salvation. It's this broken relationship. You can go to the next slide. Go to the next slide. Is it there? <laughs> All right. Then I'll go ahead and tell you what the next slide says. Technical difficulties, please stand by. The next slide reveals the New Testament view of salvation. And that view of salvation is that there is disruption between God, humanity, and humanity is disrupted with itself, right? This horizontal axis that our relationship is broken by it, our relationship with one another. And that when Jesus comes back, 
right? Jesus comes to redeem us. He restores not only our relationship with God, but with one another. There is a community that is saved. Jesus came for a kingdom, a people, an ecclesia, a church, people called out in unity. It's always this corporate sense, and that part of his redemptive work is not only restoring the relation with God, but with one another. You heard Sue speak about that in the liturgy this morning, about this community, how we're supposed to treat one another, and to deal with our grievances and forgiveness, and, and to be grown together in love. You hear it in Ephesians 4 that I read this morning. It's a picture of a body, of a corporate entity, growing, being redeemed together. That's biblical salvation. Think about what Jesus did. When he came, his first public act was to build a community. He called disciples to himself. He brought together the 12, this kind of new nation, this new people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, the book of Acts just expands this out. It's this growing people, the people of God. Jesus came to redeem and restore a community, and that is his family. Jesus didn't die for you specifically and individually. He died for you as part of his people given to him by the Father, and that has a myriad of implications. Let me give you just four of them this morning, four implications, applications of what this means. If Jesus truly did this, If he came to redeem a community, if he came for a family, for a body of people, what does that mean for you and me? Four things. The first one is this, and I'll do these quickly. The first one is this. You need to connect yourself to a spiritual community if you want to grow properly. You need to be in an embodied place with other Christians if you want to grow properly properly. You can't do it listening to podcasts, reading blogs. You will grow in a deformed way. There are reformed people and there are deformed people. A lot of the time those two go together. (laughs) Because you let yourself get disconnected, right? You, You go off into these, it's just the same kind of virtual community and all the bad stuff that happens. You get distorted. It's like a bone that's kind of placed in the wrong way, and you start to grow, but you're growing in the wrong way. You're growing in a deformed way. The way Christ has designed your growth, you read about it in Ephesians 4, it's growing together in an embodied local spiritual community. It's that idea of collective intelligence. You can't do it on your own. No one is a spiritual lone ranger. As Bonhoeffer put it, it's life together. Christianity is designed to be life together, and you have to live it that way. Each and every supporting ligament is important. You need to be in a spiritual community because Christ came to redeem a spiritual community, a people located in a place together. That's implication number one. Number two is that you need to learn how to fix relationships in your community. Right? If we really believe that Jesus came not only to restore our relationship with God, but also with one another in the spiritual community, I'd say it extends beyond that, that we have this obligation to all communities, to the world, right? To to bring peace and unity 
to bring an end to war, all those things, but it has to be starting here in the house of God, right? We have to learn how to live together and fix our relationships because we're still sinners and we have disagreements and some of you have disagreements with people in this place. But your temptation is two things. One is to avoid it, to bury it, to not deal with it, or the second one is to tell the pastor about it. I don't like what that person's doing. Is that what the Bible says to do? Is that what Jesus says to do? Jesus in Matthew 18 says this, verse 15, if your brother or sister, note the familial language. Note the idea, you know them. You go to church with them. You're in a community, a spiritual community with them. If your brother and sister or sister sins, go tell your pastor about it. No. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Why? Why does Jesus do that? Why does he expect that to work? Why doesn't he say, call, you know, Salino and Barnes, or figure, figure it out, you better go to me. No, he says, go to them, because there's this expectation that you get it. That you see that other person with whom you're having this agreement with, right, this disagreement, you see them as someone for whom Christ died. They're part of your family. Christ died for them. I got to figure this out. And I can. I have this expectation that I can because they're going to think the same thing about me. We can't let this happen because of what Jesus has done. We need to learn how to do that in the Christian community. Go to one another. Yeah, but it doesn't work out. You bring a witness or you bring a second person. And yes, there is a process. If it's still not working out, you can't resolve it. You take it to the church. But you don't avoid it. You don't tell the pastor. You go and you deal with it because Christ redeemed the community. We need to learn how to fix our relationships. That's implication number two. We need to connect to a spiritual community. We need to learn how to fix our relationships because Christ died for this community. The third implication is this, you need to learn to grow the community, to grow it. The church is not like a fancy country club, right? It's not about exclusiveness. It's not about making it hard to get in so you really want to get in, right? You're willing to pay the initiation fee, right? It's about inclusiveness. There are so many Christian communities right now that are, and they are growing actually right now for a period of time, they're using this mentality, we grow by getting narrower. We grow by building fences. We grow by circling the wagons, keeping others out, getting tighter in our community, and people are going to come, and it's going to grow, and it does seem to work for a while, but that is not the biblical picture. It's not about closing the circle, it's opening the circle. The whole New Testament, if you look at it, it's like a flower that blossoms open. You were going through the book of Acts in Sunday school. That's what it's all about, something small getting bigger. What Christianity is doing now is the exact opposite. It's like the universe imploding on itself. We don't build fences. We don't circle the wagons. We don't close the circle. We open the circle. And this is your responsibility as it is mine. You're going to get an opportunity right after this service to go out in that fellowship hall and you have an opportunity to break the circle, to open, to be looking for how to include the new person, how to draw them into the circle, 
how to make them feel part of the community. There's a wonderful story accounted in, in, in Jaber Crow by, by Wendell Berry. He has a story about this little girl, E. Lawler. She comes to the school, the Good Shepherd School, and she's kind of on the kind of, you know, on the, on the kind of border. She can't really break into this community. This is what he writes in the book. He says, I remember a little girl, E. Lawler, who came to the Good Shepherd, that's the school, when she was about seven years old, she was a slight, brown-haired, sad-looking, lonesome-looking girl whose clothes did not fit. She looked accidental or unexpected and seemed to be without expectation and resigned and so quiet that even in my selfishness, I wished I knew of a way to help her. I watched her all the time. When her class went out to play, she did not take part but only stood back and watched the other girls. She always wore a dress that sagged and brown cotton stockings that were always wrinkled. She was waiting. I did not understand that she was waiting, but she was. And then one day, as her classmates were joining hands to play some sort of game, one of the girls broke the circle. She held out her hand to the newcomer to beckon her in, and E. Lawler ran into the circle and joined hands with the others. That's what the church should be, right? We want a big family. We want a large family. We want our family to grow. We don't want it to shrink. We don't want it to be about closing a circle. We want it to be open. Carl Truman talks about this in that article, that this is the opportunity for the church. If we are losing real places of community, well, we have one. We have something to offer the culture, a place of real community. We need to have a mindset of openness, not fences. We need to be about including people, opening that circle, growing the family together. That's a third implication. We need to learn how to grow, grow by opening. Finally this morning, the fourth one is this. You need to remember that we are God's family. You need to remember this point. That this is how God sees you. Do you ever think about that? And this gets us a little bit out of that individual. Like oftentimes we think, oh, this is me and God, right? We're, I'm in this thing with God. You are in a family with God. And the scripture uses those familiar terms. God is our Father. I don't pray my Father. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus taught us, we pray our Father. He is our Father. We are His children. And you are to each other, brothers and sisters. This is the conception. And we need to remember that, particularly if we want to grow, because this is how God sees you. And I want you to think about this, because it's amazing. I was reading an article about Sam Bankman Freed, right? The SBF, right? And his parents, the Bankman Freeds. And about, even though all this guy did, right? It's, it's, it's pretty horrible. It's pretty clear. His parents are still there. Still believing there's some good in him. Right? And isn't that true about parents? Like there's this blindness we all have in our kids. Like what would you think about a parent who abandons their kid? No matter what they've done. You don't do it. Why? If they were your neighbor, your coworker, you'd dump them in a second, but they're your kid. And no matter what they do, they're your kid. 
And that's how God sees you. And you got to believe that to understand your relationship with God. God's never going to boot you out, right? God doesn't look at you and see a screw-up, even if you are a screw-up. He sees his child. And I can't, sometimes I can't even make sense of this in my head because in one sense, God is this incredibly exacting parent, right? When it comes to Jesus, it's perfection. But when it comes to all of us, it's this amazing love of a father. We are his children, and you need to see yourself that way, that God loves you, that we are his family, and to see each other as God's family. When you deal with one another, see each other as brothers and sisters. That's how I see you, by the way. I love Sundays. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up in an Italian family. We had pasta every Sunday. It was family day. You got together and you were there. You were there around the table because we're family. This is family. Sunday is family. It's God calling you over to his house to have dinner. We're all going to do this at Thanksgiving, right? You want to be there, first of all. Because God's your father and he invites you to be here. But every Sunday is like that. We're family and we're together. And that's how I see you when I'm up here. There's a great story that Scott Hosey uh, uses, and I'll close with this. It's a, from a memoir of a pastor named Richard Lisher. He, uh, the memoir is Open Secrets, and he pastored, he recalls pastoring the small community, rural community, and he was doing the Lord's Supper, and he would always hold up the chalice, right, the cup. He would hold it way up above himself when he dedicated the cup. And the people of the congregation, you know, these kind of country folks, they were a little worried. Maybe he was going Roman Catholic or something. They were a little worried about what he was doing, why he did that. What was he doing? Why was he doing that? And Lisher wrote in his memoir that he did that because when he lifted up the cup, the silver chalice, right? When he lifted it up above him, in the bottom of the cup, in the convex kind of, you know, contours of the bottom of the cup, he could see the whole congregation. And he loved it. Because it reminded him, even though that there were you know, people quibbling and people fighting, they were one in the cup of Christ. A family. Right? Families have squabbles. Families have problems. But we're family. Remember, that's how God sees you. And remember to see one another that way. See with the eyes of God. You are not only God's children, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. One in the cup of Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for making us a people, for giving us a family, for redeeming and restoring our relationships. We thank you for your love and your grace and for one another. Help us to be the community you've called us to be so that we can grow together, all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.